You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 103. to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife and conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today's interview was conducted by one of our newest contributors to the show, Courtney Ray. Courtney brings a very different perspective on wildlife and conservation issues to the show, and I am super excited to have her on board. Courtney and I actually went to college together in upstate New York, so we've been friends for a long time, and it's really wonderful to have this opportunity to collaborate with her on the show. As you'll hear in the interview, Courtney lives in Portland, Oregon, and works as a community organizer for the nonprofit organization Bark, whose mission is to transform the Mount Hood National Forest into a place where wildlife thrives and where local communities can have a social, cultural, and economic investment in its restoration and preservation. Courtney is deeply embedded in the conservation and environmental community in Portland and beyond through her work with BARC as well as other groups, and she'll be continuing to explore the intersection between conservation and social justice in future episodes of the show. To get a proper introduction to Courtney as well as our other new EOC contributor, Serena Simons, you can check out episode 100 of the podcast. Otherwise, stay tuned, and we'll jump right into Courtney's conversation with this week's guest, Esther Forbin. I am Courtney Ray. I am a new contributor to the podcast. Uh, I'm here in Portland, Oregon, North Portland, with my friend Esther Forbin. Esther is a conservationist, birder, and carpenter, and is uh, the developer of a really cool project called Birds to Know in Portland, Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, I put together this little project called 30 Birds to Know in Portland, or 30 Aves para Conocer in Portland, and it is a bilingual deck, it's English and Spanish, of beginning birder flashcards that is place-based here in Portland, Oregon. So it features 30 birds that are easily found um, within the city, and it has cool descriptions on the back of where you could find uh the featured bird, and the goal of 30 Birds to Know, or 30 Aves para Conocer, is to make all kinds of people, all Portlanders, feel welcome in the birdwatching community and feel like empowered to go out and learn about the birds that live in our city and hopefully connect to the wild areas, all the awesome wild areas that we have around Portland, like Forest Park and Cathedral Park. And you love birds, I know, because behind me there are four finches in a beautiful birdhouse. That yeah. li- they live in here in your apartment with you. It's true, yeah. I have some beautiful little rescue birds that fly around my house with me. Why, why birds to know and why a card deck? So, why birds to know? I come from a, you know, poverty class, working class background... I love being outside. I grew up in the woods. I'm very active in, you know, hiking and camping culture. But as I became interested in birding, I found, like, some kind of walls between 
me and the birding community, mostly around age and class, that I kind of had to, like, hurdle or, you know, chisel my way through. Mm. And, you know, birding is, it just is right now, sort of, like, more traditionally upper-middle-class, you know, white, affluent, um, older community. Um, I found a lot of folks that were super welcoming, and then other times I didn't feel as welcomed. And so, um, you know, I experienced my own challenges in getting into birding, um, and I, I understood that those challenges would be even more difficult for folks who are either, like, first-generation immigrants or people of color, um, you know, or, like myself, you know, come from low-income background. So I, you know, as part of my, as part of my um, general life practice of making things that I think are awesome accessible to people who they don't seem accessible to, um, I sort of came across this idea of creating Birds to Know, which is... Um, in English and Spanish. Right. And, and it's actually a deck of cards. Right. Which you can't see because it's the radio. <laughs> but they're beautiful and they're produced locally. What's the name of the press? Everhart Press. Everhart Press. And so each card is hand-drawn and colored illustration that you've done. Yeah. And, for example, we have Bewick's Wren. Am I saying that right? Bewick's Wren, yeah. Bewick's Wren, also in Espanol. Salta para de Buick. <laughs> and how many are in this deck? 30. 30, yeah. There's actually 32 cards. There's one information card with a little map of Portland and some cool birding spots to check out. And then another card with like more information about where you can get books and binoculars and stuff like that. And these are all native to the area? More or less, they're or at all least bird, they're yeah, they're present. All, they're here all in wild birds who live in Portland. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So there's like the European starling is in there because it's a really common bird that you would find that isn't historically, you know, in, indigenous to this landscape. It's it's a European bird that has been very successful at making Portland and most of North America its home. I think my favorite is the cedar waxwing. Oh, I love. I'm looking for it because it's so beautiful, and I am not well versed in birds uh, as an ornithologist might be. But the cedar waxwing is just a very mysterious-looking bird. It has mischievous kind of eye coloration, and it's just really elegant. Um, And so I haven't actually seen any of these around town. I've been looking for them since I've lived here, and I haven't found them yet. But maybe I need to just look harder. Where do you usually find, like, a cedar waxwing in Portland? Oh, cedar waxwings. This is a great time of year to see cedar waxwings because they are, like, feasting on, like, crab apples and, like, neighborhood trees. Um, So I've seen flocks of cedar waxwings around this neighborhood, um, you know, just in tree in, like, crab apple trees. Um, In the fall, you can find them in other fruit trees like you know the cedar waxwings will come visit my fig tree in my front yard um but yeah if you just keep your ears open they have this like really sweet whispery call that's like so if you hear that just kind of try and look look up and look around and okay there's flocks of them around oh my the belted kingfisher is gorgeous where do you find these at um, a great place to see belted kingfishers is at um, 
Well, anywhere on the Columbia Slough would be great at Smith and Bybee Lakes. Um, is a great place to see belted kingfishers. You can also see them along the Willamette and the Columbia. They're really loud. They have this wild, raucous call that's just really, really loud and rattly. And you'll know <laughs> it when you hear it, and then you'll you'll be able to find them by that. Um, yeah, they're really pretty birds. They have like this really sort of dramatic um, chest band, and they're blue, slate blue with a, this orangish, orangish, rusty chest band. And they're really beautiful, and you can see them fishing along the waterways here. And who did you work with in order to do the translation and things like that? So I worked with a number of folks, um, uh, both here um, in Portland and a friend online um, that I met through friends. Uh, And so, yeah, I I have uh, friends who speak Spanish as their first language, and... um, so I was able to, you know, both both hearing from them that they're interested in birding but don't know how to get involved in birding and looking around for birding books in Spanish. And there's just basically, there's like one, which is Avista in North America or Birds of North America by uh, Ken Kaufman. It's a great book, but there's really just one, there's one book that is available to people interested in birding. Right. Um, and it's all of North America, so it's not like regionally based. So it's mm-hmm. not very. It, so it's very broad. Lots and lots of species, rather than just a few species that you can get to know more quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah. So my friends who are interested in birding helped me with the translations. I also like that you know some of these birds are birds you might see in your backyard or you know nearby, and then there's also osprey and peregrine falcons. You know things that. Or maybe a little bit more rare, definitely more dis- kind of distinct of a wild landscape, but you're here in the city, and that's really interesting. Um, peregrine falcons downtown, I imagine. Yeah, peregrine falcons. You can see peregrine falcons um, when you're downtown. Just keep your eyes on the sky, and you'll see them soaring through the canyons of skyscrapers. <laughs> the few tall buildings we have in Portland, Oregon. But yeah, the peregrines are really uh, awesome sort of, like, charismatic creature that have a interesting conservation story. You know, they're, they have come back to um, this area because of really concerted and dedicated conservation efforts on the part of the Audubon Society here, in particular Bob Salinger, who will actually climb up on the many bridges here in Portland um, where the peregrine falcons nest to, you know, monitor their young and check on the eggs and stuff like that. So, yeah, because of, partially because of the ban on DDT, um, we get to have these beautiful, amazing raptors in our city. Like Banning DDT is good for people, too. Banning DDT (laughs) is good for people, too. Exactly. Yeah. And so most, a lot of people have no idea that there's peregrine falcons that are here year-round, that nest here, that you can go to Cathedral Park under the beautiful, iconic St. John's Bridge and see them swooping and, you know, hunting pigeons, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's an awesome place to to look for peregrine falcons is at Cathedral Park. Yeah. Well, so it's beautiful and it's handy and it's unique in that it's not your average book, bird or book, you know, and it's very simple and, um, it's been a really popular item that we've been able to pass out at, at Bark. And I found that people, especially kids get really excited to have something in their hands. They kind of, they can play with more than a book too. So 
Yeah, it's, I mean, for me, it's like flashcards or something that is like a really accessible learning tool that people, you know, of all ages are pretty familiar with. And so it is a great, it is a great learning device for kids. Um, it's a great learning device for people who are interested in birds and also want to learn Spanish. It's a great learning device for people who speak Spanish and are working on their English, who right. are also interested in birds. So it's a really, like, it's a really good learning tool. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, sometimes, um, you know, guidebooks can be a little bit more precious, like they're more expensive, it's a bound thing, and yeah, um, most birder, like, books that you'll come across, like, the typical, like, Sibley's Bird, you know, Sibley's Birds is a really awesome, comprehensive guide to... All of the birds of North America, um, but it's just, there's, you know, hundreds of birds in it. And right. really, if, as you're just learning birds, like, you need to learn 15 birds first, you mm-hmm. know, or 30 birds first. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't, you know, it's, like, actually really hard to, like, if you're just very, very new to birding, it's really hard to see, you know, a song sparrow in your front yard and then go to a bird book unless you have a lot of experience, like, for example, like, you know, you've been educated in botany and you know how to key out plants or you know how to look for specific characteristics or qualities of, you know, plants or animals. It's actually really hard to, like, start identifying birds. So my goal with 30 Birds to Know was to just present, like, a very small set of birds that you'll definitely see, you know, in the city. Right. You know, it narrows it down for you a lot. I have bought many birding books and have not really been able to deal with it, you know? If you get the book out and you're like flipping through looking for the blue section that has the songbirds. You're not even sure if it's a songbird that you're looking at outside, you're just guessing. But having this narrowed down to these thirty common and I think, you know, they kind of stand out, the species that you've chosen. There there is a you know, a robin and some of them really common, but most of these birds are a western tanager is unmistakable, right? Yeah. Once you see this card and this beautiful orange and yellow bird, you don't I don't need to carry this card around anymore. I know exactly what I'm looking at now that I that I've looked at it, you know, on your illustration and that, I see them everywhere. That's great. That's awesome. That's so wonderful. These bird guides, they're they're great, you know. I I use them all the time, but that's because I'm like more of like an advanced birder, you know, like I, you know, it, I feel a lot more comfortable now picking up a, a big exhaustive um, guide to birds and flipping through and finding where the woodpeckers are. Cause I can like recognize the general shape and, you know, size of what a woodpecker is, you know, mm-hmm. but when I was first starting out, you know, yeah, birders are just like kind of actually, I've, encountered a lot of gatekeeping, which is so bizarre, right? What do you mean by gatekeeping? Well, what I mean by gatekeeping is like, oh yeah, here's this book, familiarize yourself with these 265 species. Call me when you have it memorized and I'll I'll take you out. I'll take you out (laughs) to the field. Meet me at 4.30 a.m. No, I mean, it's, there's like a bit of competitiveness. There's a bit of fussiness. There's a bit of like, you know, and I've heard this from my friends who are women and I've heard this from my friends who are people of color who say, oh yeah, 
like, I'll totally see a bird and positively ID it. And all the white dudes in the, you know, birding, you know, group will totally second guess me or not believe that I've, like, positively ID'd this bird and have to see it themselves. And it's like, yeah, it's like everywhere else. Like, um, yeah, those tendencies in humans are... So you're empowering the disempowered to engage with, with birding as something that's cool and interesting and smart and accessible even if you're living in the city and i mean that's what's important to me because i found that birding contributes to my quality of life in this almost indescribable way where i didn't know that there were such magnificent spectacular creatures like all around me because i wasn't looking for them Hmm. like um, the first time that I saw Lewis's woodpecker, which you won't find in Portland, Oregon, but I, I saw one in Eastern Oregon, in Eastern Oregon, someone set up a spotting scope and pointed it at the Lewis's woodpecker and said, Hey, look at this bird. And it's this brilliant purple and green, like magnificent speckled beast that it just blew my mind. I was like, what? Like this, we, I live in the same environment as this creature. Yeah. Um, and so Looking at birds adds, like, a texture and depth and character to the environment that wasn't there before. Like, Mm. I can say that my life is fundamentally better and changed because I started seeing birds. That's lovely. And everyone deserves to have access to that, you know? And so when I encounter gatekeeping, when I encounter fussy old people, um... Not being, not making bird watching really accessible and welcoming. I'm like, that's not fair. Right. You know, that's not cool. Right. Everyone deserves to have access to this if they're interested in it. Mm-hmm. Where have you introduced these cards? Have you been taking them to schools or other groups? Oh yeah, that's a really good question. So um, one of the one of the caveats of my funding, I got a, I got a grant and then I also got. Um, some funding through PSU, um, through their clean tech challenge. One of the caveats was actually that it be marketable. Mm-hmm. So, uh, initially I wanted to just give the cards away, but because of that funding model, they're like, okay, we need you to sell some of them. So I sell, I sell half of the cards and that is to fund giving away the other half. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've been distributing them through local environmental organizations like the Columbia Slough Watershed Council, who has this really awesome bilingual outdoor, um, event every year focused on um environment like environmental education and just getting people into the into the slough and that is in spanish it's called explorando so it's a it's a bilingual event so uh they were able to give away a bunch of cards at that um and then also uh, bark has been really um supportive in helping me get these cards into the hands of community members we had a beginning bird watching 101 um kind of skillshare at bark um where i just kind of talked about how to get into birding basics and also gave away and sold a bunch of decks of cards so that was really fun and then you know they're helpful for environmental groups who are doing like just tabling um so they have something to give away so i've just donated many decks of cards to local environmental groups and i'm hearing probably you have organizing experience we haven't talked about your organizing experience just in our friendship i don't think but a really important i guess concept is to meet people where they are and so what this represents is something you kind of can't fail at this this is setting you up for success this bird 
is in your neighborhood and you may or may not see it every day. You just, you know, that recognition is the door to, you know, having a connection with nature that is all around you rather than, you know, a more in-depth technical or, you know, ornithological guidebook. Yeah. And that's what I really like, though I have failed to find cedar wax wings so far. <laughs> we'll find them. <laughs> we can go out. So, yeah, I, I do want to hear more about your, I guess, philosophy in being a conservationist and providing tools like this, which I think are unique. And I think we need more uh, creative and kind of locally generated, locally place-based tools for people to connect with right where they are. Not that they need to go traveling to some distant national park or public land that's hours away, you need a car, and all these things um, that can be real barriers. I'm sure there are cedar wax wings in the forest, too. But the idea that you have to go to the forest to engage is something that can be a problem. It can be just um, a hurdle for a lot of different people. Can you just riff on your conservation philosophy about how it is we're going to have a movement that is more accessible to people, even like in an urban setting? Yeah, I mean, this whole idea that nature is somewhere else and that it is like a destination, I think, needs to be challenged. Um, like, you can birdwatch at the bus stop, you know? There's, you're, there's going to be... You know, or you should birdwatch at the bus stop. <laughs> you should bird at the bus bus stop. There's, right now, there are these amazing um, Anna's hummingbirds in the city that are flying all over the place. If you like, listen for them and start looking at them instead of your phone. You know, you'll be able to, you know, just like check in, get grounded. You know, we know that um, being connected with nature has like really significant health benefits, like mental health benefits, psychological benefits, physical benefits. So it's it's a thing, it's a way that, you know, birdwatching in the city is a way that helps people just see the nature that's already all around them every single day and pay attention to it and notice it and connect with it in a more meaningful way. Um, and I know that when people learn about wild areas that are around them, you know, like if I go and learn about the birds that live in Peninsula Park, like Sharpshin hawks and Cooper's hawks, then I'm much more interest in, interested and invested in keeping that a green a green space and a healthy space um, than if I'm not invested in that area. Mm. And, you know, as a city, Portland has put a lot of um, money and planning and time and infrastructure into... Um, urban green spaces like Forest Park, like the restoration of Johnson Creek, um, areas like this that if we want them to be protected in perpetuity, which is the goal of any conservationist, right, mm -hmm. then we have to make sure that our communities are connected to those places, that they know them and love them and are invested in them. And so that means that people, you know, people need to you know, go to them and engage, you know, not just yeah. like walk through quickly or ride their bike through on the Springwater Corridor, but slow down and like check out the birds, check out the cedar waxwings and the yellow rumped warblers and the scrub jays <laughs> that are living at Johnson Creek. Yeah. Right. And we do have a lot of natural areas within the city, which is cool. You mentioned Forest Park. Uh, we have the Columbia Slough 
Johnson Creek. There's several buttes that are kind of rise up out of the city landscape and may retain some of their wildness, I guess, the tops of those hills. Um, what's your favorite spot to birdwatch in Portland? Honestly, there's so many great birdwatching spots in Portland. Mount Tabor is really beautiful. It's like this iconic, beautiful park. Powell Butte is really beautiful. But I'm really partial to places in North Portland, like um, Smith and Bybee Lake. It's uh, Smith and Bybee Lakes are actually like in a fairly industrial, um, not neighborhoody zone. But riding my bike up there, I sometimes even kayak up there. I get to see, you know. Um, eagles, you know, I've seen bald eagles there, I've seen grebes, I've seen, you know, tons of, like, waterfowl and um, great blue herons. It's just a really beautiful spot for, you know, warblers and sparrows as well. So that's a a really great birding spot that's just right here in North Portland. Mm -hmm. And then also the Columbia Slough is a good spot to go as well, which is kind of historically a much more industrial zone that is that folks have put a lot of energy into um, restoring and taking care of mm-hmm. recently, more recently. Right, recently. North Portland is an interesting political place in Portland. And you're right that recently a lot of resources have been dedicated to making North Portland more, I'm doing air quotes, mm-hmm. livable. Mm-hmm. Because it was traditionally very industrial. It's right on the limit in Columbia Confluence. Uh, this is their shipyards and factories and manufacturing and all that kind of thing. And for the longest time, this was the, the heart of the African-American community and a below-average income area. But recently... A lot has changed. Um, I don't know that the resources going into Smith and Bivey and the Columbia Slough in particular should or could be considered part of gentrification, but I think that's an interesting question. You know, if you start to rebeautify someplace and um, restore these natural areas, and that creates a value, an economic value, um, that can be a part of gentrification, I think. That is where people want to live. It is. It does give you um, certain amenities and access to nature that you don't have living in the. Typically, if you live in the inner city or in a low income area, do you have any? I feel like I just sprung this question on yeah, you, but it's a good one though. What do you think about that? I mean, East Portland, far from where we are right now in North Portland, is now you know the the seat of the lower income part of the community. I don't see nearly as much resources going into restoring the natural areas out there. Well, it's it's one of the it's one of those situations where it's like, yeah, um, we have to ha- we have to like maintain a critique about gentrification and any sort of like economic development that's happening that's like very specific to communities that have historically been, you know, low-income or communities of Mm -hmm. color. This neighborhood was historically, like, working-class white and African-American. It was definitely the heart of, like, African-American culture, not just in Portland, but in all of Oregon. There was basically one neighborhood that could be spoken of as 
the black neighborhood. Right. And a lot of people, a lot of African-American people have been pushed out because of um, historic redlining, not having access to mortgage, buying a house, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then when rents went up, a lot of people moved, a lot of um, African-Americans were forced to move out because of raising rents, right? Right. Um, At the same time, this is still... um, the closest thing to a black community I think that Oregon has and so seeing ecological um, resources brought back to this area as far as like people having green spaces to go running to go bird watching to Mm -hmm. bring their families is is really important and you know North Portland is um, still mixed income Mm -hmm. and culturally diverse and everyone deserves to have access to beautiful parks and green areas you know it's it's easy to look at forest park and it's up there in the west hills and right. a lot of energy and a lot of resources has gone into that mm-hmm. there's an awesome outdoor school up there you right. know um and not everybody has access to that you know right it's it's definitely pretty it feels pretty far from here sometimes it in does. North portland mm-hmm. yeah And so, yeah, for me, advocating for not just for there to be these these beautiful places that are restored where they're, you know, replanting native plants and putting in trails and stuff, not just that, but also like the the sort of cultural barriers that people have um, from low income communities or from like first generation immigrant communities to going to those places right Mm -hmm. so like if there's if it doesn't feel like a place where you're welcome you know Mm -hmm. then you're less likely to go i i was um lucky lucky enough to do the illustrations for the interpretive signage at nadaka nature park which is out in east portland it's like on the border of portland and gresham Mm -hmm. and that's just a sign about the birds of nadaka nature park it's a beautiful beautiful park with a wonderful forest and this really awesome natural playground and um yeah so metro recently sponsored this interpretive signage and there's just like 10 different birds that you can see in nadaka Mm -hmm. in the park and it's in um english and in spanish and also in russian because there's a a large russian population that Mm -hmm. lives out there and so i think you know working on projects like that where we're saying hey everybody is welcome here this is a park for all communities this is a park where all kids can come play Mm -hmm. this is a green space where all people can come learn about birds and wildlife is just really important work that we have to do we have Mm -hmm. to keep doing and we use words like inclusivity and intersectionality and then conservationism and a big question that I want to explore and I think from all the conversations that I've had with you you have similar thoughts to me is that how can we clarify where those concepts um, can become real can become tangible and accessible and something that people can integrate into their daily lives. Um, Something like Birds to Know is something you can have in your pocket. If you live near these different natural areas around town, maybe you can get to them on your way to work or, you know, they're around the corner from you. And which values, you know, just acknowledging that we're serving not just the conservation value, but we're actually serving a value that is about the quality of life for people who've historically had 
less access or even been, you know, restricted completely from having access to places like that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, I think that there's like this tendency for people in the environmental movement, um, which is, you know, in a lot of ways, I think we we consider the environmental movement as, oh, yeah, it's like it's it's REI people. It's people who have money to go on like whatever fancy vacations or something. Or, or money to do conservation projects. People, people have money to, to, you know, contribute, you know, large sums to, like, the Nature Conservancy or something. Um, so in that sense, it's like the environmental movement can be considered very, you know, upper middle class. But I know a ton of working class people right, who are such badass environmentalists who do real work. Mm-hmm. You know, I just came back from Standing Rock. You know how many working class and, and poverty class people are out there? Almost all, you know, they're people who quit their jobs washing dishes to go be at Standing Rock, you Mm -hmm. know, and that's like really real important work. And Mm -hmm. so the environmental movement is not just, you know, right. People who have money to to donate to their local nonprofit environmental work or whatever. Right. Um, At the same time, we don't get to use words like inclusivity or we don't get to celebrate diversity without acknowledging that there is a history of ra- racism and and exclusion, and there is a current practice of racism and exclusion for in so many sectors of of everything of, of the economy of culture of you know what I mean right. of of everything and so and so we don't get to just we don't get to skip the justice part right like we have to acknowledge that. Violence and harm are being done to communities of color today, and that violence and harm are being done to women today, and that you know violence and harm are being done to undocumented immigrants, and and that is absolutely critical to moving forward. You know, mm-hmm. is is seeing that, saying it's not okay, and working hard to make it right. I know, living in Oregon, my perspective on going out into the forest and into the distant kind of places around Portland, not not far from Portland even, but as soon as I'm out of the city, I feel an immediate pressure because I'm not totally trusting the communities um, or some of the folks in the communities kind of out in the sticks. And that came as a shock to me because I hadn't that hadn't occurred to me living in other parts of the country that I needed to be cautious about who else was on the trail with me or what people might think of the bumper stickers on my vehicle at the trailhead or whether I should go alone and things like that. And I think that those things are really real for, for people in these urban natural areas too. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the reasons why I was inspired to make, um, birds, 30 birds to know or 30 aves para conocer is because I've had these experiences with folks who, you know, are, are not native, like, we're not born in Portland, you know, like, I... Like me. Yes, like you. <laughs> um, like, who weren't born in Portland, who didn't grow up around here, who come from a really different place than I do. Um, a friend of mine who actually comes from southern Mexico um, came to Portland and worked as, you know, a general laborer for many years and saved up money and started going to community college. He wanted to become an engineer. And, you know, as I was sitting down with him and talking to him about how... Uh, we could actually like raise money for for some 
students who didn't have enough money to like buy their books or whatever. Mm. Um, you know, he told me his story about like traveling, you know, traveling all the way from Mexico and like on his own, working really hard, saving up money and enrolling himself into the local community college. It kind of like, you know, occurred to me, you know, I was like, well, I'm so glad, you know, I'm so glad that you're here and I just want you to feel really welcome here. And he said, that's the first time anyone's ever said that to me. He's like, that is the first time anyone said you are welcome here. And I'm like, wow, you've been in Portland for like, what, seven years or something? And I'm the first person who is a Portland, you know, who's like, yeah, I've lived here for a really long time. I'm the first person who said you're welcome here. Like, that's completely unacceptable to me. Like, so part of making outdoor educational materials in Spanish is my way of saying to people who are, you know, who traveled here from southern Mexico and live here now and have decided to make Portland their home, that you are welcome here and that this is your community and that you have access to these spaces. Your voice matters. I want to hear from you, you know? Mm -hmm. And... What I found is that by doing outreach in Spanish, even though my Spanish is really terrible, I'm working on it. Um, I've been able to like really form meaningful friendships and relationships and working partnerships with people, um, you know, from the immigrant community who really do care about environmental issues and who have really great ideas and who there's no way we would hurt we would have heard from um, otherwise if I hadn't have done outreach in Spanish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean. The idea that um, the voices that matter, somehow, like, the voices that matter for, like, creating change, you know, or, like, all, like, you know, innovative environmental solutions, that those that those answers are going to come from people who already have so much invested in the current infrastructure, in current social norms, in sort of the status quo as it is, is, to me, preposterous, you right. know? Like, we... We got in a situation. We got in a situation where we're faced with a massive extinction crisis. You know, we are hemorrhaging biodiversity. Um, we are in a crisis around um, global warming, right? And we have a crisis of, of clean water, right? Like so much of our water is threatened by pollution, um, by by oil industry, by lead. You know, and fundamentally, we we got in this situation. Because we live in a, a white supremacist capitalist culture, and that the answers are not going to come from people who are invested in that sort of status quo. Mm-hmm. And so, when I hear from someone who made his way here from southern Mexico, who comes from a, a family that lives in a you know a very humble home with a dirt floor and he you know made his way here because he believed in himself and he and he had a hope for something better and he had like the ingenuity and the strength and the will and like just the just just like that capacity to believe in himself and to overcome all of those obstacles his perspective to me is just so much more um encouraging and and interesting and potentially useful than someone who, you know, fully comes from this, you know? Yeah. We need uh, perspectives and solutions to problems from folks who experience the problems and not from folks who created the problems. Something that always strikes me is when folks try to describe how they can make it profitable to 
switched to solar. And I feel... I feel like you're already shooting yourself in the foot if you can't leave behind the profit mentality in order to save the ecological resources that are going to keep people and everything else alive. There's a priority there that should outweigh any amount of profit, but it's really hard to pass legislation or even get interest in legislation unless you can show how, it, how it's going to create this economic growth. Portland has a long way to go, but we also kind of have some good stepping stones laid out uh, because there has been a really strong environmental presence um, and conservation presence in Oregon. You know, everything about Oregon is green. It's not, if you're listening and you're not from Oregon, there's a lot of Oregon that's totally not green. (laughs) A lot of it is clear cut and filled with pesticides and everything else. (laughs) But the branding, again, is that this is this environmental mecca um, and that you're going to have access. And I want that to be true. You know, I want that to be true for everyone who finds themselves here or who comes here looking for that intentionally. It is a kind of insanity to conceive of um, endless growth as sustainable. They're sort of the antithesis of each other. And so, yeah, like it is somewhat taboo to challenge that that norm that capitalism is that we can somehow reform the capitalist system and make you know everything more equitable equitable and sustainable and it definitely strikes fear in the hearts of fundraisers and people who are part of the you know the (laughs) non-profit you know industrial complex or whatever to conceive of of challenging you know our current economic Mm -hmm. system but it's I, I think in anybody who's willing to take the time to look at, you know, mm-hmm. this economic, the economic model that we're currently in, um, who really actually has something invested in sustainability and, um, and living equitably is going to need to challenge that. Right. Right. Um, I think it's a, it's a really interesting phenomenon that's happening here in Portland where a lot of resources have been put into restoring Johnson Creek, mm-hmm. like teams of people, you know, have gone out and done replanted native plants and they're out there, they're looking for those four salmon that spawn every year and they're counting them and, you know, there's a lot of science, there's a lot of infrastructure, there's a lot of resources that have been invested in restoring Johnson Creek, which is super important and I wholeheartedly believe in it. Mm -hmm. And that project has been just pummeled by the homeless population that has like has started camping there over right. the last few years. Mm-hmm. And I know people who've worked on that project feel very heartbroken about it. And I also see it and I, and I, and I have to say like, if it isn't just, it will not work. Right. Like we do not have a just like housing um, world for everyone, you right. know? And this is why we can't, you know, this is why we can't have nice stuff, right? Like, if we can't, if we can't accommodate everyone, if we can't say, like, Portland is a place where everyone has a right to a home, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, we need to put people in homes, you right. know? And, like, yes, restoring Johnson Creek is really, really important, and we're going to, you know, we're going to keep working but it's on it's a beautiful project. place to camp now. It is a very beautiful place to if camp. If you don't have a home. Sure, yeah. And so, yeah, like, yeah, if I, if I were, were homeless and... Um, I'm lucky that I'm not. Um, 
I would definitely go clamp, camp in the Columbia Slough, you know, watershed. I would definitely, you know, like mm-hmm. up there where it's green and pretty and, you know, more quiet. I would definitely camp on the Springwater Corridor in the Johnson Creek watershed. You know, like right. that's where I would go. And that is like how that land serves those people, right. you know. And if we want to if we want to change how we relate to that land, we have to change our culture and we have to change how we relate to each other. And that means we need to make sure people have homes. When you start addressing these issues of like real estate speculators coming to Portland and, you know, by, you know, buying up properties and then just holding on to them and not even leasing them out because it's an investment or, or flipping them really quickly. And, you know, people are facing 300% rent increases Mm -hmm. in one month. It's going to be more and more people looking to live in the slough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and when I look at that, I say, well, well, there's a problem here, right? Like, and it's the problem. The problem isn't the people who've been made homeless by horrendous economic policies, right? It's, it's those horrendous economic policies, you know, there's people who are hoarding wealth and it's, and it's not, it's, you know, it's not okay, you know? No. Um, and so I think we need to challenge capitalism. We need to challenge, we need to challenge those people coming into, you know, the Portland basin and saying, okay, we can, we can exploit these resources so that we can hoard more, more Mm -hmm. money, you know, like that's, that's not okay. Right. No. Conservationists against capitalism. Yeah. Conservationists. CAC. Conservationists. I think we just founded a a new organization. (laughs) (laughs) The model, like the sort of historic models of like catering to the wealthy class in order to get large sums of money to just purchase tracts of land and set it aside um, is not a model that's going to work in the future, you know? Yeah. I think... uh, I mean, it hasn't worked. It hasn't worked, right, yeah. So, I mean, looking looking to the future, you know, um, I'm really inspired by Standing Rock. I'm really inspired. I was really inspired to go out there and, and, um, you know, work on projects with people and learn about this pan-indigenous movement that is forming around, um, you know, really important issues like treaty rights, um, like social justice, and absolutely environmental, very, very critical environmental issues. You know, when you hear someone like um, LaDonna Bravebull, who's lived uh, along the Cannonball and at the confluence of the Cannonball and, and Missouri rivers, her people have lived there, you know, since time immemorial when she says water is life. We cannot live without clean water. I live here. My ancestors are buried here. This is sacred land. We cannot live without clean water. She knows what, she knows that, you know, and yeah. she means it. And she's gonna, and she said, you know, she's like, I'm not going anywhere. You know, there's people who've been there, you know, through, you know, negative 30 degree weather, you know, in teepees, you know, those people are like, we're not going anywhere. You know, they're committed to protecting that land and protecting that water in a way that is so far beyond any one who can open their check. Right. You know what I mean? write a check, you don't have to put your body on the line. That's the benefit of having money Mm -hmm. (laughs) you don't have to do that you have you can you can i don't know uh be productive by giving you know giving money and unfortunately that money is necessary you know for now but that you can't just put stacks of money on 
the Cannonball River, that's not going to stop anything from happening. You have to have people there, and you have to have people who are invested in it, and people who are unafraid of what they're going to be asked to do or to sacrifice in order to get it. It's not, it's not a check. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, to me, it's like that the power of that movement is like what it's going to take, you know, to, yeah, to, um, resist the Trump regime and to, yeah. And to have the vision and to have like the creativity and, willingness to create a new world you know like the, the the folks at standing rock are like we're living in a totally different way because we need to live in a totally different way this the way that people are living on the land now which is extraction based you know like um more in morton county you know drilling oil you know building pipelines um it's just not it's it's not the way that people are going to be able to do like to to be able to live in the future you know yeah. and they're like looking at like how how to be sustainable, how to get energy from wind and solar. and So, yeah, that to me is really inspiring. Mm-hmm. That's the future of conservation to me, mm-hmm. is people who have a connection to the land who are willing to be there, invest in it, and defend it because they are actually connected to it, not because they have, like, some, right. you know, intellectual or, philo- or philosophical attachment to an ideal and can open up their paycheck right. or their checkbook or whatever. And the more people that we can help connect to the land, the more people there are to take action in that way, to have that perspective. So many folks are stuck in offices every day or like stuck in their car commuting or, you know, like can't afford to take time off to go and explore something. Absolutely. But you're right. You know, you can birdwatch at the bus stop and Mm -hmm. creating a bridge there for folks who don't have access or showing them that they do, you know, or or creating some awareness around the access that is there, trying to strengthen the connection from that perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's something magical about birds. I mean, they're tiny dinosaurs. (laughs) Like, What's more magical than that? (laughs) Some of them are tiny though. (laughs) I've heard cool things about, I know that, um, I think on the Kalamath, they're looking at reintroducing California condors in their native natural range and on the Columbia. Yep. And those aren't tiny dinosaurs. Those are big, amazing, intimidating dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, I heard that um, you actually um, had a California condor experience. It was pretty significant. I did. I Because of my friendship with the producer of Wildlands, uh, Matt Podolsky, was down in Arizona for years, I believe, working with Peregrine Fund. And so I got to go and visit and grapple with condors and, and work in the field. And and that is something I was able to do because Matt and I went to the same college and I met mm. him at college. And, you know, there's a level of privilege that set me on a path that would give me access to do something like that. And that's just not true for the majority of people. So I like to share that experience because people think it's exciting. I don't know. It was kind of scary. I was scared. I think it's exciting. (laughs) Um, But yeah, having, you know, being able to connect with a species that's in such, at such an endangered status. Mm -hmm. It's a very rare, very, very rare bird. And, you know, as a woman of color, that's really astonishing for me 
to know that I just made made it onto some path that got me there and had me, you know, up in northern Arizona right. holding one of the last living condors at that time. And I know that that's something, I mean, it's rare for everybody, but I feel like the majority of people who get that opportunity are educated white and male. And so I, I do recognize that that was maybe more than a little bit of luck, but also my access, you know, the access that I created by some series of playing into the game, you know? Um, and that was really great, but you know, having condors flying freely over Portland would be better, you know, it would be better if we all had an understanding and an expectation that this animal was part of the landscape. And if the, the effort to reintroduce them and bring that population back into like a healthful state in this region was something that not strictly well-funded little conservation groups were privy to or working on. How do you do that? How do you help people in a city that don't really have time to even go on a hike, maybe because of their work situation or their family situation? How do you encourage them to care about restoring an endangered species that has been extirpated from the landscape for a hundred and some odd years? Where does having a birds to know deck lead you to wanting to see a species return to a landscape where you live? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> that's a really great question. No, I mean, I and I grew up, you know, I grew up in a working class town in southern Oregon where there's just like, you know, during the timber wars where it's like, yeah, my uncle worked in a mill and a lot of working class loggers were really mad about the spotted owl, you know, mm-hmm. and so I'm very. I grew that. That is the the soup that you know I was marinating in as a as a young person, right. you know, and so I'm very aware of like that conflict, and I know that it's a false one. It isn't that people don't care about endangered species. It's that people have been denied the opportunity to connect in in a way that is meaningful and in a way that that hasn't been tainted by this false threat of like oh the endangered species act is going to like you know take away your land or your rights or the endangered species act is going to like damage your capacity to make a living you know right. like i mean that's a really good example of you know like yeah timber the timber industry was cutting down a bunch of trees and not milling them in southern Oregon, but sending them overseas because it was cheaper. So it was like, it was economically expedient for them to cut out that workforce. Right. It wasn't the owl. It was mechanization in the industry and the the profit prerogative. Sure. And it was like really easy to like scapegoat environmentalists because the, because of like the sort of like historic, like, oh, like it's hippie or countercultural or something. And also because it's like, yeah, that that was just what was easy to do to mm-hmm. say, oh, it's the fault of like, you know, these crazy people who don't under don't understand that we need to like put food on the table, mm-hmm. you know. And I mean, it's just it's just it's a false narrative that just needs to be it, it just needs to be challenged at a, at every turn. And so, like, how does a, a deck of beginning bird or flashcards like connect? working class people, people who maybe, you know, we might assume wouldn't care about endangered species. It's just folks who've been denied the opportunity to be in the woods and to, like, learn about 
licorice ferns and to learn about redwood trees and to learn about double-breasted cormorants and flickers and downy woodpeckers. It's just not fair, you know, that people have been denied that access, you know. Outdoor school is great. And it it can't just be for rich kids and it can't just be for white kids, you know. Like, everyone deserves to have access to outdoor education. And so, yeah, 30 Birds to Know is an effort to just put, like, just a little bit of of that um, intention out into the world. That, yeah, this is, the earth is for everyone, right? Right. Yeah. Well, I... I love this card deck. It's one of my prized possessions. I do use it a lot. And so I am really proud to be in the community of people that are coming up with solutions like this and roads to connecting our community uh, to the natural world and bringing bringing some fresh air into the conservation movement um, just by trying to include everyone for once. <laughs> uh, where can people Where can people get these? These cards. Oh, cool. So if folks are interested in picking up a deck of 30 Birds to Know or Trenta Aves para Conocer in Portland, you can go to www.birdstoknow.org. Um, <laughs> you can go to the Audubon Nature Store uh, here in Portland, or you can go to this really cool little shop down the street um, from my house called Flutter. Yeah. You can also go to um, eberhartpress.org. Sells them online as well. And those are the folks that I collaborated with to do the printing on this job. Well, it's been great talking to you, Esther. Uh, I hope that you will take the mic and go on your own interview adventures, too. I'd love to have a partner in crime here in Portland to get, get these conversations going here at the confluence of the Willamette and the Columbia. Awesome. Thank you so much, Courtney. It was really fun to talk with you. Yeah. We'll see you next time. All right. That was EOC contributor Courtney Ray talking with conservationist and birder Esther Forbin. I really love how Courtney and Esther's conversation weaves back and forth between topics in conservation, birding, and social justice. These connections are so crucial to the future of the conservation movement, and it's really refreshing to hear about Esther's efforts to engage people whose perspectives have been historically neglected by many environmental groups. As always, all of the resources mentioned in this episode can be found on the show notes page for this episode, which you'll find at wildlensinc.org slash EOC103. If you enjoyed this episode of the show, you can subscribe to the EOC podcast on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. You can also help us out a lot by leaving an honest rating and review on iTunes for our show. Just search for Eyes on Conservation in the iTunes store or click the link on the show notes page. The Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of Wild Lens. Today's interview was produced by Courtney Ray and edited by myself, your co-host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. The Humidors.